Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. everyone. Thank you so much for being such a loyal audience. Today I have two things to talk about very briefly. The first one is that I have created a page on Facebook. It's called Understand Suicide, the same name as the podcast, because I do miss interacting with you. So you can talk to me directly there or even among yourselves, but I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear ideas, topics, maybe questions that you might have and I could explore here. So just help me do this together. The second thing is that on my webpage now, understandsuicide.com, you have a donate option, so you could donate to the podcast. It could really help me because it takes at least eight to ten hours for me to finish each of these episodes. It's a lot of work. I have to come up with the ideas for the themes and topics I want to cover, find someone to interview, you know, get in touch with them. Sometimes it takes months to get someone to say, yes, let's do it. And the editing and all of that costs. So if you find that this is helpful for you, I would appreciate your help. Thank you. Hello, welcome to my podcast. Today I have a comedian with us. You are the first, Frank. (laughs) (laughs) Just by the name, you may imagine that I never thought about inviting a comedian to my podcast, but here you are. Here I am. Very good reason. His name, my guest today is Frank King. He's a comedian, as I said before. He's well known as the health Mental health comedian, is that it? That is correct. And he wrote for more than 20 years for The Tonight Show. So why would I invite a comedian to my show? Well, he has a long experience and family experience with suicide and mental health issues. And it took him a long time to realize that this was intergenerational Mm -hmm. and also find ways to cope with it and to deal with it and to acknowledge what he had so I think you have so much I know he does TED talks and he has come to some not conclusions but some awareness of what was going on with him that I think is very valuable to share with my audience so welcome to my show thank you for being here with us Frank I'm delighted to be here And if you're watching the video, because this is also in in my YouTube channel, you see that he's in his car. (laughs) That's my virtual automobile. It's not really. Oh, you know, in the last one I did this morning, I had my German Shepherd back here going to the vet. And somebody goes, is that a dog? Oh, no, it's a virtual dog. So, Frank, thank you for sharing your experience. And I would like to first ask you about your family history. Can you just tell us a little bit about your history with depression and with suicide ideation? 
Yes, it, it's called, as you said, generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. I and if you, I'll spare the the details. But uh, my first TEDx talk is called "A Matter of Laugh," L-A-U-G-H, or death. And the story of finding my great aunt is in there. And about ten years ago, uh, this week, I uh, after filing Chapter Seven bankruptcy. Losing everything we'd worked for for 25 years, I learned what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Uh, and I have two mental illnesses, major depressive disorder, relatively common, and then something a little more uh, rare, I guess, uh, chronic suicidal ideation or chronic suicidality, mm-hmm. which is, uh, although it's rare, I must tell you, every keynote I've ever given, at least one person, sometimes more, have that condition, did not, did not know it had a name, they thought they were just some kind of freak. And mm-hmm. when they find out, well, a young woman came up after a college presentation, said, uh, thank you for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She said, but it made me weep. I said, how to make you weep? She goes, well, you know, I tell a story about how suicide is always a solution for people like me and people in my tribe for any problem, large or small. And I tell a story mm-hmm. about my car breaking, this car breaking down. And I had three thoughts, unbidden, get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. And she said, when you said that out loud, you know, buy a new one, get it fixed, or you could just kill yourself. She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I didn't know it had a name. I thought I was some kind of freak. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I was not alone, and I wept. So that's... So acknowledging, yeah. Yeah, and, and letting people know that they're, they're not alone, they're not freaks. It's, it's a thing. It has a name. You know, the relief mm-hmm. for her was palpable to know. And I'm hoping that maybe I steered her just far enough off the path to suicide that she'll mm-hmm. lead a normal life. Sure. And this happens over and over and over again. Yes, I'm, I'm sure it does because it is such a taboo. So many mm. people suffer in pain. But when they hear someone say, here's, you know, I hear you. And, and we're in the same, as you said, same tribe, right? Yes. I'm, I'm and sure she said, it brings... Uh, relief. She said to me, I was hoping I would grow out of it. And I said, I'm 63 years old. If I'm going to grow out of this, I better get started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, talking about secrets and not talking about something, uh, how was that dealt? Mental health issues, suicide, how was it dealt in your family? Did people talk uh, about it? It wasn't in my mother's generation. My mother and and her generation decided that, because I was only four years old when I witnessed my great aunt's suicide. They decided they would create a myth, a family myth, that um, she, when she took her life, she was very much serene, had her hands folded in prayer. It was mm-hmm. not the horrible scene that it actually was. And so they, they did not acknowledge it. It was, nobody talked about it. Until my cousin, in 2012, I mentioned this myth to him. I didn't know it was a myth. And he's 10 years older. And so he was there in the family when it happened. And he knew that they had been lying to me for decades. And he told me the real story. And then all of a sudden, whatever had been holding that back in my brain, um, you know, where I had the a compartment came back? Boom. Uh, all at once. Uh, it, it was a pretty horrific scene. And, um, and that was one of the things that encouraged me to speak out about it. And then I wanted to use my comedy and speaking. I always wanted to speak. And not just be funny, but to make a difference. 
-hmm. And I could never figure out what I had to teach anybody. And then after I realized my family history, my personal history, and the fact that nobody talks about depression or suicide out loud, unless you bring it up and then everybody has a story. Then let's thought, bring it up, right? Let's bring it up. And I, but my, my challenge was to rebrand from funny speaker, comedian, to speaker who was funny. So that's when I did my first TEDx talk to let the event planners, meeting planners, speakers bureaus realize that I could be serious. Mm -hmm. And sure. I've done four since then. Same idea, let them know that, you know, yes, it's, it's, there's humor, but there's learning objectives, takeaways, mm -hmm. action items. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. When did you realize, Frank, um, let's talk about your depression first. When did you, was, when you go back in your memory, uh, when was the first time that you realized that there was something that needed attention? Well, I was in college and my high school sweetheart went to a school all the way across the country. So I did not realize that it was depression. I just thought I was lonely and heart sick. And, but I believe looking back that I was depressed. And then I made the mistake of marrying my high school sweetheart, although a wonderful woman, uh, we did not belong together. And, and she wanted me to sell insurance as her dad did. So I got into the insurance business, great business, but I was miserable. And I realized a couple of years into the marriage and the insurance business that I was depressed and I was suicidal because I really believed since the fourth grade, that I wanted to be a comedian. And my wife did not like the idea, so I was not going to the comedy club to do with the open mic nights. And, and I realized if I did not change something and quickly, I was going to kill myself. And my mm -hmm. second thought was, well, I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, I can still kill myself. So that's how I got into comedy was, I, you know, it, it really wasn't a choice. It was either stay put and die or roll the dice, mm -hmm. do what I thought I was supposed to be doing. And fortunately, it worked out. And so um, that's why my, my fourth TEDx talk is called Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. Because it's a story of how I realized that I was going to kill myself if I didn't do something. And so I, I you know, jumped ship, tried comedy, and thank goodness it worked. So it pushed you through change, and it was a positive change then? Yes, because I, I really did believe I did told my first joke in the fourth grade. I did the senior talent show in high school. I won doing comedy. I've always been very funny. My entire so family humor, funny. humor was always there. Yes, and the family as well. My sister's very funny. My, my mother was very funny. And so I, I inherited that along with the mental illness from my mother. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, everybody in my family except for one cousin has a, one mental illness or another. Really? Everybody's, uh, yeah. And the difference now is my generation my sister, my cousins, myself, we're all very open about it. You know, everybody, there's no taboo in the family. And for my nieces and nephews, same thing, because it's just known in the family that we live with these conditions. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, everybody's out about their mental, mental health, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Your first uh, time having ideation was when you were married. Was that the first time that suicide yes. came to mind? Okay. I was driving down. Highway 163 in San Diego late in the afternoon, which is my lowest time of day mentally. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of overcast and I was married miserable, insurance miserable. And it just flashed across my brain. Well, why don't you just kill yourself? And I was like, where did that come from? And that was mm -hmm. not, that was certainly not the last time that thought crossed my brain. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, that was the first time. I, it was my first, 
that's the first time I remember that as an option that came out of nowhere. Okay. Okay. Has it, do you find that now that you openly talk about it and you just said that your generation in your family does talk about it, but do you find that what you do now has changed or has changed the way your relationships are or your friends are more open about it or does it have an impact, direct impact on your family, for example? Uh, my family, yes, since we're all out about it and and the nieces and nephews have no problem saying, mom, dad, Frank, I'm depressed. And we, you know, we, and then when I, I, did, I came out at age 56 in that first TEDx talk, nobody in my family knew that I was depressed and suicidal. Really? I had been, you know, people with mental illness, very good actors. I have a Screen Actors Guild card for a reason. Um, I'd just been acting normal for 56 years. And so I used the opportunity on stage to come out and say, I live with these mental illnesses and it was a great relief. Mm. It also allowed my wife to understand why occasionally I was moody. You know, mm -hmm. that it wasn't her fault or something she did. It also allowed me to surround myself with friends who sort of my pit crew, if you were racing, you know, that are there when you pull into the pit and you need something, they, um, mm -hmm. they don't judge. They understand what I'm going through. They just ask, you know, I said to my workout partner, said to me one day, how are you doing? I said, I'm wretchedly depressed. He said, what does that look like? And I told him what it looked like. And, you know. Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. I said, well, I said to him, um, you know, when you were 18 years old and you were a young man and every other thought was about a young woman. And he mm -hmm. said, I remember that. I go. And then he says, well, what's your every other thought about now? I said, going back to bed, pulling the covers over my head and binge watching Netflix. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we both laughed about it. I think you should have people in your life that you can be that brutally honest with. Sure. When they say, how are you doing? You can actually tell them. But you, you also model for people, don't you? When you do that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. He has he, uh, hmm. Parkinson's and, and is very open about it. And we, we actually joke. He's able to joke with me about his Parkinson's. He's got a little bit of a tremor. And so we've, you know, he's not offended if, you know, I said, if we yeah. gave you a gun and we're holding up a place and you're going like this, I think the guy's going to be really nervous. Uh, so because he's out with me about his chronic illness and of I'm course, out with him. Yeah. yeah. If you want more information about suicide, my book is now available on Amazon, both in paperback and digital formats. Just type in the title, Understanding Suicide, or my name, Paula Fontinelli. The book was written for people like you, and it's the result of more than 10 years of conversations with families who lost loved ones to suicide, individuals who attempted suicide, specialists, and mental health professionals. Thank you for your support. Now back to the interview. You know, you were, you were telling the story of you told your friend I'm, I'm depressed and said, what does that look like? It reminded me actually two stories that you told that reminded me of Andrew Solomon. I'm sure you've read his book on depression, uh, the midday demon. I believe so. Andrew, Andrew Solomon. And it's one of the best books on depression I've read. And I interviewed him from, for, for my book 
And he tells a story that he did the same. And he was a good friend of his. He, he met this good friend. And for a long time, he had, they'd been friends. And he asked the same question. So how are you doing? And he said, yeah, I'm really depressed. And I think it was right after the death of his mother. He said, my mother died. And he just started saying, you know, how depressed he was. And his friend just looked at him and said, well, it's so good to hear from you. And just left. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's so and you know what he says. He says in that in that moment he became my ex friend. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, you know, people, that's the thing with with mental illness and also with suicide. We don't know what to say, right? And many times that's where the stigma comes from, and it also feeds the stigma. Yes, you don't know what to say. You're afraid you said the wrong thing. Um, every now and then, I like to be honest with somebody who is neurotypical. Um, I was in Sacramento, long day, two, three hour workshops I held, uh, got in the Uber with a nice young man and their eyes locked in the rearview mirror. And he said, how are you doing? And I thought, okay, here we go. I said, I'm depressed and suicidal. How about you? And he blinked and he said, what am I supposed to say to that? I said, do you really want to know? And he said, yeah. I said, you're supposed to ask me if I have a plan. So he goes, do you have a plan? And he paused. And then he goes, does it involve Uber? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and then he made you laugh. <laughs> yes, I laughed, he laughed. I'm sure it'll give him a story to tell back at, you know, Uber headquarters. Oh, I got, I know, guy I got my sure. car with it. <laughs> Can you imagine how scared he was? <laughs> yes, he thought maybe I was going to take him with me. Um, oh, my God. But, but you know, I, over time, you... Uh, it usually happens when I'm tired. I'm tired of putting mm -hmm. on, as they say, yeah. putting on my game face. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to level with him. I'm depressed and suicidal. Mm -hmm. How about you? Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, that's my goal in life is to make talking about depression, thoughts of suicide as casual as that, as casual as talking yeah. about the weather mm -hmm. or sports mm -hmm. so that people don't get freaked out. By, and it's also your them. language, Frank, right? It, it's how yes. you express yourself. So that's, that's one. You know, the, the other thing that you mentioned is oh, that it helped my wife understand why I'm so moody sometimes, and it's mm -hmm. not her fault. Again, Andrew Solomon tells a story, and it has to do with what you said in the beginning, that after you talk, there's always someone who comes to you after yes. the presentation, and, oh, I heard you, and I have the same. And he tells the story of a woman who came to him after a presentation, said, I'm so glad you talked about this. You know, I've had depression for like 20 years, and it's really hard. I take medication. My husband doesn't know. I never told him, and it's so hard sometimes to just pretend something that you're not feeling. And she went on and on and on. And then he said that after her, other people came and talked, and then this guy comes to, to him and said, same thing, so glad I came. I, I may open up to my wife because she doesn't know. I've had it for many years. I take medication. And guess who they were? That was husband the husband of the husband and wife. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? And, and he said, well, you guys really have communication problems. <laughs> yes, I it's, actually... Um, I bet that's how hard it is for people to open up, right? I did a podcast. Um, it was a mother and daughter. It's a mental health podcast. And mm -hmm. um, the mother had a, had a very difficult childhood. And then, mm -hmm. of course, you, sometimes genetically you can pass on that stress and strain to your offspring. And so her daughter had a difficult childhood. And we're talking about chronic suicidal ideation. 
And her mother teared up a bit. And she turned to her mother and she said, you're, you're, you're crying. And her mother said to her for the first time ever, what Frank is talking about, the chronic suicidal ideation. She goes, I have that as well. Now her mom is in her seventy and had never told her adult daughter until that moment. So the daughter says, you know, after we get done with this podcast, we need to have a cup of coffee and talk. Because yeah, she never yeah, told anybody sure. until she heard me say it out loud. And, it, so. and it's understandable. It's, it's a scary yeah. thing to say, for you to say and for anyone to hear, right? Especially if you don't think it has a name, if you think it's just you and the way your brain works. Because mm -hmm. it's freaky, you know, to think, why mm -hmm. do I keep thinking about suicide? Mm -hmm. I'm so mm -hmm. I'm so used to it after all this time that it's you know it's uh, it's really a non non issue. I mean, it just flashes across my mind. I think yeah, there's a good idea, and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. but yeah. I will tell you this: it keeps me alive. Uh, the chronic suicidal ideation, because I believe suicide is mostly about pain, ending the pain. Of course, and yeah. be, be, because I know I can do it any time. Because I, uh, the metaphor would be sitting in the exit row on an airplane next to the window. I know that I can pull open the door and go anytime. It allows me, knowing that I can end the pain that way, to endure a great deal of pain going forward because I know I have an out that if it gets too, too bad, then it's kind mm -hmm. of a strange superpower, I guess. Mm -hmm. Do you find that being a man, because uh, in our society, men don't talk about emotions, right? Yeah, do you find that it, <laughs> it, it maybe took you longer than it would or maybe it has even more impact because you're a man. I think both. Um, I and two women, uh, Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas. Yes, I've interviewed on, her. She's yes, been on my I, podcast. Yeah, she's great. She and I and the therapist named Sarah Gare have created a four-book series. The second book comes out on the 16th on men's mental health. And the second volume has a great deal to do with male toxicity or masculine toxicity where you know big boys don't cry they were trained from birth a lot of us and it's not just mental things it's i've had a number of friends who passed away from prostate cancer and colon cancer simply because as, as men they put off getting a psa test or they refuse to have a colonoscopy because it's just not manly wow. and then they you know these are diseases that if you catch them early are eminently curable but because of this male toxicity or, you know, masculine toxicity, they just don't, you know, they don't, don't take care of themselves physically or mentally. I mean, if they're not going to reach out and get a PSA test, they're sure not going to go, I think I may need a psychologist. Mm -hmm. But the book mm -hmm. is all about, you know, getting beyond that and surrounding yourself with men who uh, understand that. And it's okay to mm -hmm. express your feelings. And it's, it's an anthology like Chicken Soup for the Soul. 12 stories, mm -hmm. 12 guys, each one has an issue. And then this is how I'm coping and hope that men would see how another man is coping and go, Oh, I could do that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, that's, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be involved in the project. Mm -hmm. What have you learned just to end? I have two more questions. One is what have you learned with this experience of speaking about suicide and reaching out to people in, in opening this door for people to realize what they have and, and, maybe do the same and reach out for someone and the other one is what helps you okay well um speaking is very therapeutic for me or talking about it and then that line of people after i do a general q a and i tell the audience look if you have a question you don't want to ask in front of everybody i'll just stick around 
and I'll answer individual questions until we're done. And sometimes there are eight people lined up. And I find that very therapeutic. And the because I've revealed to so many people that they have what they have has a name and maybe steered them off the path to suicide. I realized one night that I'm sort of like that character George Bailey and it's a wonderful life in that, you know, he was shown what the world would be like without him. And I've been shown by these people what the world would be like or they would be like if I weren't there to speak and say, you're not alone and steer yeah. them off the path. So it's just, you know, it's my it's why. Purpose. It's, why I, it's purpose, yeah. right? Yes. And so that helps me. And I, and I have, uh, of course, a self-care plan, diet, exercise, meditation, medication. And I have other, other techniques, gamification, things that I use to get me out of the bed or get me to the gym. So I've developed and I've developed and I've surrounded myself with my pit crew. The books on men's mental health are all wrapped around automobile metaphors. Mm-hmm. So the pit crew. Oh, that's a good, good idea. <laughs> Book for men. We, yeah, we figured they'd pick it up. <laughs> My, my favorite one that I wrote was this. Uh, don't you wish the man in your life had a check engine light? It goes off. He goes to the middle mechanic, goes up on the rack, and the middle mechanic goes, Bob, no wonder you're depressed. You're two quarts low on serotonin. Uh, very male-centric. But yeah, that's, yeah. you know, that, it, it looks like... But that's like the language, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it, the language. And it looks, looks like an owner's manual for an automobile. It's got a guy on the front with his head popped off and a guy looking in with a screwdriver. And uh, cool. on purpose, on purpose. Yeah, Sally called me, Sally Spencer Thomas. And she said, Frank, well, Sarah and I are writing this book on men's mental health. And would you make it funny? Would you add the metaphors? And I said, hold on just one second. <laughs> you, two la- you two ladies are writing a book on men's mental health? Don't you think you might need, oh, I don't know, a man? A man. A man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said yes. <laughs> yes. Well, and Sally and Sarah are both in my pitch crew, they, I could call them day or night and just say, yeah. look, I, I'm in trouble. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. And I've got a friend in Philadelphia who I know for a fact, if I called him and said, look, I'm on the ragged edge, I'm on the, I'm, on, I'm, out, I'm out on the ledge. Uh, even in COVID, he would, he would pay whatever it costs to get on a plane and fly to where I am mm. to help wow. me. And I think that's important that you have people in your life like that, who, you know, you know, we'll be there. Like, will be there for you uh, if yeah. you, if you, and I would do the same for him. So, yeah, you just brought me a great, uh, great memory. I actually got emotional now because <clears throat> when I had the depression, a good friend of mine came to, I lived in Sao Paulo at the time mm-hmm. and she came from the Northeast uh, to see me. And we went out to dinner, me, her and a friend. And I went to the bathroom and this friend told me later that she, she talked to him, she gave, because they didn't know each other, she gave him her telephone number and, and she said, if you find that she's not doing well, just give me a call and I'll get on a plane. Mm. Yeah. Yes. I, I think you need mm-hmm. people like that um, and, and in your life and, and for no other reason than if I called this gentleman up and I said I'm struggling um, and he said I'm on a plane, what he does at that moment is he plants a seed of hope that because he's getting on a plane and coming out, that there may be a way out of this. Mm-hmm. If that makes if that makes sense, yeah. and that's what that's what I try to do with everybody else is plant that seed of hope. You know, that this 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 um you know, it's with treatment and time it will get better. I'll help you get the treatment mm-hmm. you need. Take the time. So yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. that little seed of hope is what keeps uh, you know, oftentimes keeps you alive. 
Frank, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for going, getting into your car to talk to us. <laughs> Listen, thank you for letting me be your first comedian on the on the podcast. Oh, yeah, it's it's been great. I love it. <laughs> we need more. We need more laughs on my podcast. <laughs> yes, that's well. You know, that's why people ask me: Does being a comedian um, keep you from getting booked to speak on suicide? I said, No, you've got it backwards. They want the information, the learning objectives. They want mm -hmm. lived experience, and they value the fact that I can weave my personal stories that are amusing, you know, mm -hmm. tasteful and amusing, in to give people relief as we go through the very difficult subjects. So. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Keep yourself safe. <laughs> go Thank back you. home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Bye bye. Right. Have a good Thanks day. Thanks very much. You too. <laughs>